from Swarthmore College. From Swarthmore College, this is. This is. This is. This is War News Radio. I'm Sam Hirschman. And I'm Jared Nolan. This week on War News Radio, moving up, we learn about the promise of new rights for Saudi women. When voices from the Arab world, including women, raised up the question of more equality for women, that was a powerful voice. Then, we look into depictions of the war in Afghanistan. Images coming out of Afghanistan past, what, 30 years are uh, mainly about uh, war and violence. Finally, we hear about the life of a Puerto Rican self-proclaimed political prisoner. The United States' presence in Puerto Rico is not legal. This is War News Radio. In late September, amid the frenzy of news and reports on revolutionary protests in the Arab world, came the news that Saudi Arabia, a traditionally conservative kingdom, was planning to allow women to participate and vote in elections within five years. Warner's Radio's Yuan Chu, speaking with a member of the Saudi royal family and with an expert in human rights, discusses the implications of these reforms and how they play into the bigger picture of the Arab Spring. On September 25th, King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia announced in a royal decree that effective in 2015, women would have the right to vote and run in municipal elections for the first time in the nation's history. For Reem Al-Fasal, an award-winning photojournalist and the granddaughter of the late King Faisal of Saudi Arabia, these reforms mark a necessary increase in the political power of Saudi women. Well, I think it would be a great step for women, of course. Women should be involved in the legislature far more than anything else. The declaration also allows for women to be eligible for appointment to the National Shura Council, the formal advisory council for the country, by 2012. The laws of the country are being, women are totally excluded from. So I suppose voting would give them a sort of pressure that the voice would count now. These reforms come on the heels of the Arab Spring, a series of revolutionary protests in the Arab world which caused violent demonstrations in Saudi Arabia's neighboring Bahrain, Yemen, Qatar, and the overthrowing of the Egyptian government. The King's decree also comes at a time of growing women's suffrage movements and protests on the current ban on women driving. When voices from the Arab world, including women, raised up the question of more equality for women, that was a powerful voice. That was Mark Lagon, an adjunct senior fellow for human rights at the Council on Foreign Relations and an international relations chair at Georgetown University. Secular Islamic law, known as the Sharia, and tribal customs heavily influence gender roles in Saudi society. All Saudi women are required to have a male guardian and are restricted in many aspects of economic and political life due to public segregation of the sexes. For Lagon, King Abdullah's reforms are a long time coming. Increasingly, there's an awareness in the Arab world about how women not only deserve equal access to justice, but are, are squandered assets. Maybe, maybe the Saudis are slowly beginning to see interests in according greater rights to women. Saudi Arabia has traditionally been criticized by various Western-based international organizations for what they believe is an oppressive climate towards women. 
The World Economic Forum's 2011 Global Gender Gap Report, released before the decree, ranks Saudi Arabia as 131st out of 135 countries for gender parity. Until women are treated uh, as equals, they will be relegated to, when raped, being accused of adultery, when their spouse dies, not getting access to the property through inheritance or the ability to start a business by owning property. These are all things that harm women politically, economically, socially. There's a vocal group of Saudi women, including Al Faisal, who, while acknowledging that women do face inequality in the country, do not believe the situation for Saudi women is as bleak as some paint it to be. There are certain setbacks, but they are the richest segment of the society. They hold the highest level of doctorate more than men. They are in different professions. Many of our scientists are women. Though the World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap Report scored Saudi Arabia poorly in economic participation and political empowerment for women, the country scores highly when it comes to health and survival and educational attainment. Al-Fasal notes that given that Saudi Arabia was only founded in 1932, development of women's rights has been fairly quick when put on a historical timeline. The, the first uh, education of women was 60 years ago. So there were no women educated, let alone anything. In that process, in six years, they have managed to reach the higher education and also to reach positions in government and very high civilian positions. King Abdullah has called for an increase in economic opportunities, and the number of mixed-gender workplaces has steadily increased, with the top hospitals and universities in the country employing a number of female professionals. If you measure it with Western countries where there was supposed to be democracies and voting and, uh, and even education for women. When was the American Republic created and when the women were allowed to vote or were allowed to reach higher education? Lagon, however, disagrees with Al Faisal and believes that, compared with his Arab neighbors, Saudi Arabia has been slow and unwilling to reform. For Lagon, in the face of rapid change in the Arab world, the rule of the Saudi monarchy is in jeopardy. The right image is whether it's going to be nimble or whether it's going to be brittle. And a state that suppresses dissent and squanders a resource of productivity and of reconciliation in society in the form of women is not contributing to its nimbleness, its flexibility for the future. Saudi Arabia itself was shaken by a series of small but nonetheless rare protests in the country which garnered much publicity in early 2011. Al-Fasal believes that the fact that Saudi Arabia has avoided the more violent protests of the Arab Spring is indicative of the kingdom's unique history and responsive leadership. There was a sort of a terrible detachment in countries like Tunisia or Egypt of their governments and their uh, leaders from their society. In Saudi Arabia, this hasn't happened. And if it would have been uh, the situation, you would have seen protests exactly like in the Arab world, which they didn't. So our situation is different. We have problems. Yes, we do, but we have different problems. Many advocates of reform, including Al Faisal, have criticized Western critics of Saudi Arabia for not understanding the unique culture and society of the country. There's a misinterpretation of the situation on the ground. They don't understand the history and the background of Saudi Arabia. The second is that they apply what came out of a certain historical process in the West to our own society.
Lagon agrees and believes that there is a false dichotomy between the political and civil liberties that the West is focused on and the economic and social rights some developing states look at. I think the West needs to be more open to how the dignity of people to be able to have economic prosperity and have some access to housing and health care are legitimate rights. Still, Leon is unwavering in his criticism of the lack of equal rights granted to Saudi women. When there's a systematic effort through religion and through government power, that's not something that one can say is cultural. That's just repressive. Al-Fasal is certain that, despite criticisms, Saudi women will continue to campaign for what they believe in, in their own way. Saudi women are not disconnected from the world. They do see what's going on around them, and they are fighting their own fight. But they might not reach what people expect of them, because that's not what they want. Though he believes that there is a long way to go before women are equal to men in Saudi society, Leon is cautiously optimistic about the chance of more reforms in the future. At least the movement from octogenarians to slightly younger leaders, the Arab Spring, taken together certainly accelerate the possibility of more reform. The question is whether the king will do more. Whether or not King Abdullah will keep his word and allow women to vote in 2015 remains to be seen. Similar promises of women's suffrage have been made and broken before, when the Ministry of Municipal Affairs announced in 2005 that women would be allowed to vote by 2011. This time around, however, the Arab Spring has caused a dramatically different political landscape in the Arab world. Many advocates, both in and outside of Saudi Arabia, are waiting to see what implications these reforms will have for the kingdom. For War News Radio, this is Yuan Shu. This is War News Radio. Media images of conflict-ridden countries often center on the military, omitting images of daily life. War News Radio's Hannah Kozlowska talks to Western and Afghan photographers about the depictions of civilians in Afghanistan. When we hear the word Afghanistan, the images that come to mind are usually those of the uniforms of American soldiers, of guns, blood, and destruction. However, Afghanistan's colors are not only khaki and crimson, They are also the cerulean blue of the women's burqas, or the cobalt of the sky that the kite flyers watched during their Friday night gatherings, which had once been banned by the Taliban. Dushan Vranich was chief photographer for the American Newswire Service, the Associated Press, in Afghanistan, responsible for all military and non-military coverage from the country from 2009 to 2011. Images coming out of Afghanistan past, what, 30 years? Um, are uh, mainly about uh, war and violence. London-based, award-winning fine arts photographer Seamus Murphy has been documenting the lives of ordinary Afghans since 1994. 
actually know, get to know the Afghan people themselves and know what they want, uh, it's going to be very hard to help stabilize the country and bring peace to it. The United States troops are scheduled to leave Afghanistan by the end of 2014. While the Western media focus mostly on what directly affects their public, the military engagement, the Afghans' daily life goes on amidst the turmoil. The non-military images that come out of Afghanistan are those of one of the poorest yet most resilient nations in the world, peaceful and exhausted by the never-ending war. There are photographers who feel a sense of duty to capture this facet of the conflict, to provide a complete portrayal for the Western public. Ben Lowy is a photographer working for Reportage, the editorial section of Getty Images, who has shot many feature stories in Afghanistan. I have the you know, responsibility to educate people, to, to show them that it's not all violence and that it's not everyone is out there to kill everyone. Lowy says that whether you are in New York or Kabul, you wake up in the morning and get a cup of coffee. We all have things in common, so we are attracted to what we can't see in our backyards every day. I think one of the things that makes news news is representing something that's different, something that's not the norm, and that, you know, even though fighting or wars is the norm in Afghanistan, it's still abnormal, still not a, a normal choice of behavior that everyone wants. Ronit adds that it is not just the violence that distinguishes the images of Afghan lives from their counterparts in developed countries. It is, I think it is all about this difference in that people can relate to what these people have to go through on a daily basis. You know, they, they, they don't have water, they don't have or electricity, or very, that horse carts are regular parts of traffic. The roads in the capital city are not paved. Murphy, on the other hand, says the images reflect the agenda set by Western papers. The agenda is very much, you know, what's in it for us? Uh, how's this going to affect us? Uh, what's it costing us? Um, all relevant questions, but when it becomes the whole issue and becomes the only coverage you have of Afghanistan, I think it's very one-sided. Afghanistan has been a theater of war for a very long time. Many Afghans living today have witnessed a series of conflicts from the 1979 Soviet invasion and the ensuing 10-year-long war, the civil war raging all throughout the 90s, to the current conflict which started with the 2001 invasion by U.S. and British forces following 9-11. According to Lowy, Afghans, in spite of the great challenges they face, always put the best foot forward. You stick a bunch of New Yorkers in the same situation that most Afghans need to live in, and they wouldn't be able to survive. Murphy has visited Afghanistan 15 times since he first went there in 1994. People are, are generally sort of amazed at the um, uh, the Afghan people and how how humble and how dignified they are, you know, even with all the, the troubles they've lived through. Maryam Alimi is an Afghan photographer for the Afghan Eyes Agency and one of the few women working in the field in the country. It's very difficult for me to make them understand the picture I'm taking, what the, the picture has a value for me and for all the other people that I'm going to show and telling their story about them. Jawad Jalali is a 23-year-old photographer who has worked as a freelancer for the Associated Press, the New York Times, and other major news organizations. 
In 2010, he decided to start his own agency, Afghan Eyes, which is now commissioned by clients such as the World Bank and the BBC. The three founding members are trying to pass on their skills by offering photography classes to other young Afghans. If you want to show the world that people are peaceful people, they uh, want to be educated, they want to learn, they want to uh, get advantage of technology. Jalali is frustrated with Afghanistan being the backdrop for clashing foreign interests. He mentions Iranian spies and Pakistani-sponsored attacks in the capital of the country. When Pakistan won war in India, he, he camps in Kabul and make a suicide attack in front of the embassy. So these are all things uh, from foreigners, not from Afghans. Murphy says that instead of looking at Afghanistan through a lens of foreign interests, we should try to look at it from an Afghan perspective. I think it, it, it balances the, the, you know, the outside world view of the country. Um, it is not a country of extremists. Uh, what, what always interested me about Afghanistan was Afghanistan and the Afghans, not the British uh, involvement there, not the American involvement there, uh, not the Russian involvement there. Over the past 15 years, Murphy has been documenting the life of one Afghan family. In 1994, during the Civil War, he spent a night in their house in one of the most dangerous parts of Kabul at the time. An amazing experience because it was uh, terrifying because of the fighting on the street and, and the, the bombing and the, and the shelling that's going on throughout the night. Uh, but also extraordinary because the people were just so, so generous and, and so warm. Lowy says that considering all the trauma they had gone through, all Afghans should be in therapy. It's amazing that the entire country doesn't have PTSD. Not all the images of civilian life are positive and show hope. For Lowy, one of the most memorable stories he did in Afghanistan was of a drug den. A ray of light, visible only because of the smoke from the drugs, was coming in through a shrapnel hole in the wall. We ended up spending the next day five hours in this basement room watching this light uh, moves through this, basically this tomb of drug addicts uh, and illuminating different ones at every stage of, of, of the morning. Considering past coverage of Afghanistan in the Western media, the next few years will probably bring more military images. However, people like Lowy, Murphy, and Jalali will continue to provide the public outside of Afghanistan with images of the daily struggle and hope of the Afghan people. The images that come out of the country, as Vronich predicts, will ultimately depend on the security situation and whether moving around Afghanistan will be safe. For War News Radio, I'm Hannah Kozowska. This is War News Radio. Self-proclaimed former political prisoner Alicia Rodriguez-Velez was arrested in 1980 and convicted for a seditious conspiracy, 
in the fight for what she calls the decolonization of Puerto Rico. After 19 years in U.S. federal prison, she was granted amnesty by United States President Bill Clinton. War News Radio's Jared Portillo covers Rodriguez's advocacy for Puerto Rican liberation. Imagine being stuck in a prison for 19 years, living in a 7 by 9 foot space, unable to leave the small prison area. Imagine the inability to decide where you're going or what you're doing. From the beginning they sense this is not, you know, a, um, a normal arrest. This was the life of Chicago-born Puerto Rican activist Alicia Rodriguez Velez for 19 years, from 1980 to 1999. Rodriguez was one of 11 fellow activists arrested and convicted in the early 1980s as a result of their advocacy for what she calls Puerto Rican colonial liberation and an affiliation with over 100 bombings. Puerto Rico is officially considered a territory of the United States, although Rodriguez considers it a colony. She was originally sentenced to 55 years but President Bill Clinton granted her clemency in 1999. Rodriguez recently accounted her story during a presentation at Swarthmore College, a small liberal arts school near Philadelphia and the parent institution of this radio program. Decolonization is important to us because we are a colony. Upon arrest, Rodriguez and her comrades refused to divulge their identities, and soon after their arrest, they proclaimed themselves prisoners of war. And prisoner of war meaning that um, we were moving our, ourselves into a path away from their courts and into international courts. As prisoners of war, they claimed that they would have to be tried under international laws which had different implications. With this legal strategy, they hoped to be tried under the Decolonization Committee, which also falls into international law. And we told the um, judges, both at the state and the federal court, that we would not recognize the jurisdiction. And they said, well, you have no other choice. But we didn't silence ourselves. Mm -hmm. And we said, we would put up a defense, but it had to be in a neutral, in a neutral um, space. It could not be with, in front of a government that had been holding us as a colony. Following her presentation, Rodriguez detailed her view of Puerto Rico as a U.S. colony, which defines Rodriguez's advocacy. Puerto Rico is a colony. Puerto Rico was invaded by the United States. The United States' presence in Puerto Rico is not legal. Rodriguez's passion for advocacy on behalf of Puerto Rican independence began early on through her education in the early 50s in Chicago. While at school, she noticed discrimination in the way she was being treated as a minority student, seeing educators create a segregated atmosphere because she was Puerto Rican. Rodriguez explained this during her presentation. Um, as a young Latina, a young Puerto Rican, being able, not at that time, you know, as a six-year-old or as a seven-year-old, but as I continued, it began to serve as a as the roots, you know what I mean, that changes have to take place. Further inspiration for Puerto Rican uprising, according to Rodriguez, was fueled by the Black Panther movements, which served as a part of the African-American civil rights movement in the 1960s. Now, and following her release, Rodriguez continues to advocate on behalf of Puerto Rican independence from the U.S. through events such as the one at Swarthmore. Initially, in fact, following her release, it was the idea that her situation would help shine light on the Puerto Rican struggle for independence 
which helped her leave prison without a dominating sense of guilt, while others that had been arrested with her remained in prison. Because I wasn't going to be in a cell anymore. You know, I would have access to, to the, the radio waves, the media, you know. I said, okay, fine, I'll step out. However, life after her release hasn't proven to be easy. Swarthmore host and director of the Intercultural Center, Dean Rafael Zapata, explained this, quickly detailing her last attempted visit to Swarthmore College. Alicia Rodriguez was invited and was scheduled to appear at Swarthmore on Monday, September 25th, 2005. Um, she was part of a broader tour. Um, however, on Saturday, September 23rd, on the anniversary of Edrito de Larres, while at a community event in Philadelphia, um, it was learned that Filiberto Jovenla Rios, who had been underground, he had been a member of the Los Macheteros for many years, had been sought by the FBI, but it was commonly known that he was living, was killed by the FBI and other agents of um, the Puerto Rican police. Rios was a member of the Macheteros for many years, a group that supported Puerto Rican independence. Rodriguez saw Rios' death as a sign of violent repression toward Puerto Rico within the United States and found herself forced to return to Puerto Rico. During an interview, Rodriguez also explained that, having been a former convict, she also finds it difficult to get a job, especially, Rodriguez says, being a political prisoner. However, as of now, she still finds comfort in other ties to her heritage. I'm a potter. Wish I could make, make you know, a living being a potter. Um, I do a lot of um, these type of informal um, you know, um, conferences or panels, and I'm an artist. I love working, especially with charcoal, with portraits. So it keeps me sane. It keeps me, you know, tapped into my roots, especially the clay. In working with clay, Rodriguez also works with younger children, working not only to teach them clay, but sensitize them about their culture. We're descendants of the Taino Indians, and it was the Taino women that worked pottery, you know, and they did it so they could have their plates. They did it so they can have their vessels to, to, to store the, the, the seeds that they would harvest, you know, and to transport water. So it's in our blood. It's in our blood. I, I do a lot of workshops, um, clay workshops, and it's mostly with the poor communities and especially children, you know, giving them their roots, um, trying to, to sensitize them because culture is extremely important. And um, I enjoy it. In that way, perhaps, Rodriguez continues to raise awareness over Puerto Rican history and advocate for its ability to move beyond being, according to Rodriguez, a colony of the United States. For War News Radio, I'm Yared Portillo.
After this week, War News Radio will be suspending our weekly show. We are transforming and moving on to new media and topics, but will continue to produce high-quality content. Thank you very much for your support over the past five years, and we hope you will continue to engage with us. War News Radio is a production of Swarthmore College. Visit us online to listen to archive shows, learn more about the program, or subscribe to our feed. That's at warnewsradio.org. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to keep up with Warner's Radio. Look for the links on our site. Our behind-the-scenes crew this week includes Sofia Athanasiadis and Max Nesterak. Our producer is Jim McMillan. I'm Sam Hirschman. And I'm Jared Nolan. Thanks for listening.